Hi, I'm Christy Giratsou, and you are listening to QUB Voices. This podcast is released under Creative Commons license. You can find us at QUB Voices on Twitter, Spotify, and iTunes. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the session focused on racism and racial discrimination, or rather, a session on understanding racism and racial discrimination and acting towards their elimination. We selected this topic to resonate with the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. Racism and racial discrimination are phenomena articulated in mainstream perceptions, everyday life practices and official policies that can be traced throughout history around the world. Certain eras may belong to the past, while current examples are striking and demand action now. Racism may be structural and visible. Racism can also go unspotted, well-rooted in people's minds, and if not properly addressed, impossible to eliminate. Today, QUB Voices discusses about racism and the urgency to eliminate it with Sidney Holt, PhD candidate at School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics at Queen's. Sidney explains what racism is, how it manifests and the role each one of us has as human beings in both upholding and dismantling it. Moreover, Sydney explains how white people participate in systems that discriminate against people of color and why it is our duty to recognize your privilege and complicity and work to undo it. Hello, Sydney. Welcome to QUB Voices. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Hi, thank you for having me. I wouldn't like to talk on behalf of you, so if you could please introduce yourself to the listeners and uh, let us know a little bit more about you and your topic of research. Absolutely. Um, my name is Sydney Holt. I'm a first-year PhD candidate student in the Politics and International Relations Department um, underneath the HAPS program. My research looks at identity construction and its representation in the EU decennial censuses and the ways in which identity plays into minority rights, protections, and um, equality promotion for vulnerable communities. It sounds fascinating. So may I ask you, what is your background that feeds into your approach to this topic? My um, master's degree um, back in the States was with Holocaust and genocide studies. I'm especially fo um, focused on the ways in which genocide is perpetuated consistently and how one might think that after years and years of those events happening, we would have been able to figure out how to not have them happen continually. But it is clearly a rampant problem that continues to exist. And so my interest in my graduate program was looking at the ways 
we could learn from past events, hopefully to eliminate these sort of scenarios that promote them in future situations. One of my programs at that time, one of the classes in my program was looking at Roma experiences or gypsies, as they are more colloquially referred to. And I remember thinking in that first class that I had absolutely no idea that gypsy was a slur or that it was even completely inaccurate in terminology. Gypsy comes from a shortening of the word Egyptian. So the idea was that when the Roma populations began moving into South, uh, Southern Europe, they came through Egypt and then up through um, Italy, Greece, and such. And they, when asked where they were coming from, they said that they were coming from Egypt because that's where they had last been. So for centuries, the assumption was that they were Egyptian gypsies. And a lot of terminology for them now in different languages mirrors that gitano in Spanish, um, zigoiner, which is completely inappropriate to use in the German language now, but was very, very prominent and socially accepted terminology for quite a while. And it wasn't until relatively recently that anyone had done any research to prove that they're actually ethnically Indian. So they are not Egyptian. They're not from the continent of Africa in the slightest. And because of that, um, mis the, the misinformation that has been passed through for centuries, they have been known globally as gypsy far longer than we knew that they were actually ethnically originated in India. And so that kind of lack of understanding struck me, especially when I found out that my home state of Texas actually has a rather large population of the United States Roma population lives there. So there were these people who were very integral to my community who I knew nothing about. And while that, I wasn't to blame for it, I did have a responsibility to try and figure some more information out as soon as I understood that I had that gap in my understanding. And so moving into the PhD program, I wanted to focus more on the global ramifications of identity development and how identity, since it's so intrinsically linked with belonging, is crucial to, to a healthy and successful existence. But identity, it becomes really complicated when you start getting into majority and minority voices, especially if you are a part of a vulnerable community. Mm -hmm. So it uh, seems to me that uh, the case of Roma and uh, racism against Roma is one of the, of the, actually one of the prominent examples of uh, racism against a group that, if I may say, it goes unspotted. I mean, I, all this story that you have just um, said to us, uh, it illustrates that it is uh, uh, based on lack of understanding and uh, misconceptions that are so widespread. And uh, also it is a story that goes back. You have raised uh, very interesting points. Uh, I think that we will have the time to elaborate on each one of them uh, as we go ahead with the discussion. Uh, I would like to focus on uh, the recent examples of racism or rather uh, on anti-racism uh, protests. So Black Lives Matter is uh, one of the major and for sure most recent and massive protests against uh, racism specifically as it is experienced by people of African descent. On what grounds does racism thrive? What fuels racism? So these questions are pretty complicated. Um, there's no easy answer. I think if there had been an easy answer, we wouldn't be struggling so much to do away with racial discrimination in our existences. But 
in my opinion, a system of hierarchy and the idea that someone belongs or someone deserves something over someone else is what ends up fueling a racial discrimination. It's a system of limitations. So in that system, someone must have the most, which automatically means that someone must have the least. It is a binary of us and them, that narrative that continues. And so this system of imbalance the people with the loudest voices are typically the ones who have figured out that that's how the system works, in part because historically that majority voice, the white voice, is the one who set it up to begin with. And because of that imbalance, the majority won't want to give away its power. You can see that more recently in um, the United States politics. A majority does not want to give up its voice because it considers that that is how it gets what it wants. And so even when we reach now with the Black Lives Matter program and, and movements, it is not that everyone is against the idea of equality. Everyone is against the idea of losing what they think they have. And so it's that idea of there's not enough to go around, that scarcity mentality. And so if I have rights, someone has to not have rights. And if I have the voice, someone has to not have the voice. And so it's one thing you hear it a lot, in, especially in um, more of the state's narratives, which is where the Black Lives Matter movement began, where someone will say something like, I believe everyone has rights, but I'm afraid giving someone else a louder voice will take away from my voice. And then that makes them feel that their rights are being infringed upon. And that's not actually the narrative at all, but because that's how the system is built, where someone has to be the loudest and therefore someone is the quietest, that is the belief. And it's been the belief for many, many years. So it is a combination of factors, but on the basis of all of this, it is in a way, you know, that some lives matter more than others. And there is a whole... Uh, um, and there are so many arguments that support this. And in the end, it seems that are irrelevant to what really happens, but inform this reality of discriminations and racism and everything. So uh, we hear often of systemic racism or language that echoes racial stereotyping. How is racism expressed? And what is the gravity of different expressions of racism? If there is any difference, of course. So racism is expressed in a wide variety of ways, from the institutional to the individual, um, from the very, very subtle to the overt and outspoken. Um, because our system, um, which in my, in my opinion, the system, what I mean is, is our, our state of existence, this reality that we've agreed upon, because it is based on that hierarchy system, you either have these very overt, outward, straightforward descriptions of racism in which, for instance, someone can go break into someone else's house and shoot a black woman while she is sleeping because it is because he's a police officer and that's part of the law. Or you can have something more subtle where a black teenager perhaps is followed around a store because the store owner has the subtle notion that because this person is a person of color, they are more likely to steal something. And these, so these, you could have something like a slur made in passing that is not meant to disenfranchise someone, but supports an idea that, that someone is less important than another person that, as you said, that some lives matter more than others, 
or you could have violence done against something and so someone. And so a systemic racism or the language of systemic racism is the racial discrimination that is so intrinsic to our societal ways of thinking that it supports a, these wide, wide variety of actions, microaggressions to outright violence. I see. So, and are there forms of racism more visible than others? Or if I may to put it differently, is it easier to identify racism against specific groups while similar behaviors or practices against other groups uh, would possibly go unspotted? Absolutely. Um, those, as I mentioned earlier, the microaggressions are an example of indirect racism. So you can have direct or indirect and direct would be something like someone being not being allowed to rent a flat because of their race or a um, very outright straightforward, no, you cannot do this thing because of your race. Whereas indirect ones are something almost more insidious in a lot of ways because the perpetrator frequently doesn't realize that they're doing them. It is something just part and parcel to the society that they've been, in, they've been in, in, enriched in as a child and grown up in. So a microaggression would be something like a fraternity house, a, a brotherhood in, in the States, a frat house, who is made up of people of color, black, Latinx, etc. They're, and they're all men because it's a fraternity. If they, they could meet outside, maybe they go to the park to play a um, game of ultimate frisbee and a neighbor calls the cops on them because they see a group of non-white men and assume it must be gang related. If you were to ask that person... Would you classify yourself as racist for having called the cops on these people specifically because of their race? They would probably not agree with you. They would probably say no. No one wants to be called racist. But it doesn't change the fact that they stereotyped based on race and therefore that is a racist act. They just can't see it as well. And so when we when we talk, obviously the Black Lives Matter movement gained a lot of of forward momentum with the senseless and multitudinous murders of black people at the hands of police. But that's not the only violence against people of color that they're speaking out against. It's also those microaggressions, the ones that are, are smaller and quieter and are almost harder to argue against. For instance, one microaggression that I found in the news the other day was that last year in June, I think in London, 10 times more young black men, black teenagers were stopped and searched during the first lockdown than any other demographic, which obviously that number skews rather unfavorably towards black teenagers. And when asked about it, the police departments tried to justify it by saying that it's statistically known that black people are more likely to be the perpetuators of violent crimes. And so therefore, it, it, they tried to justify it by saying that it was in their nature and so they needed to be stopped more frequently. That justification, as skewed as those statistics are, That justification can't get around the fact that you typecast somebody and that you stereotype someone based on their race. And so even if you yourself do not support racism, as it, the large terminology is, if you are taking part in these microaggressions because either you don't realize it or, or you do realize it, but you think it's somehow justified, you are just as 
you're committing just as much violence to a community as someone who is shooting an unarmed black person in the streets. Mm-hmm. I see. Also, what's um, uh, it's very interesting in what you previously said is, for example, that example that um, uh, people might call the police on the grounds that uh, people gathered in front of their house uh, are black. But however, uh, they would not recognize themselves as racist. I mean, it is very contradicting and it shows me that they are ignorant or they or there are certain connotations with racism that they are not that willing to identify with this label. So could you please elaborate a little bit more? Absolutely, yes. That was an interesting um, facet of the Black Lives Movement when they were first gaining some momentum. I remember reading an article that was about that because it, it is hard to separate the very what I call the white noise. It's kind of that noise that you don't really hear going on in the background because you're so used to it at this point. So specifically for the majority voices, which are typically white, those that white noise is that very slight, small buzzing of racial stereotyping and racial ideology that you may not realize that you are perpetuating. And so when it comes down to it, nobody wants to be called racist and no one wants to admit that they are because it is so culturally frowned upon. For all that legislation and policy does not necessarily reflect protection of minority rights all the time, no one, no one can disagree that racism is bad. That's something we agree as a society. Racism is bad. But then there's there's such a wide variety of racist acts that that people can perpetuate one and attempt to justify it to themselves in such a way that labels them not as racist because it is easier for them to deal with that. Um, It is easy to convince yourself that you're not racist because you aren't committing violent acts against a a demographic and a community that isn't unlike your own. But it is much harder to admit that you may actually still be perpetuating those kind of thinking, that line of thinking – because nobody wants to be racist. Obviously, everybody can admit that they would rather be open and progressive and diverse. And even those who probably have a harder time admitting that they're not racist understand society frowns on that. And so you can have people who have absolutely no idea that what they're perpetuating is actually just an example of a racist microaggression against another community. Instead, they see it as they've they've managed to justify it to themselves. Like the example I gave before, that individual who might have called the police on a group of young men does not see it as a racial stereotyping. They have bought into the ideas that people of color are more likely to commit crimes, which is a falsehood on all sorts of statistical levels, but is a statement that is spoken pretty frequently And so because of that, you can have someone who will call the cops on a group of people and still manage to convince themselves that it had nothing to do with their race. It was somehow societally justified. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could you assess us, you know, uh, making a step forward, the fact that nowadays racism is regarded as bad? Uh, Of course, this uh, understanding contradicts with our reality where racial discriminations are, you know, so common and so often and so widespread and even part of the of public discourses. But 
could we assess uh, these bad connotations with racism as a step forward, perhaps? Is there any positive potenti potential? Like yes, yes, I absolutely think so. Um, it, the first step is admitting that the racism is both there and is negatively affecting, it's detrimentally affecting society on all levels. And so it's, it's, it's a bit of a, it is a bit of a two steps forward, one step back kind of a thing where, yes, we can admit that violence against people based on, on race that, that is justified by some racial stereotyping is bad. Not only is violence against another person bad, but when you attempt to justify it based on perceived differences, that has no, that has no grounds. And so having that, admitting that and, and justifying it on a societal and cultural level is a good thing because it can have positive reinforcement to movements like the Black Lives Matter movements where, where suddenly this whole societal system is outraged at the handling of, of the, just, the justice system. However, as much as that is a step forward, these smaller, subtler ones if we can admit that that is also an example of a racial discrimination or an activity based on race, race, racial ideas, then if we can't admit that that's a problem, then we cannot take a step forward to fix that as well. You have to fix both the indirect and the direct examples of racial ideology and racial discrimination. And the direct ones are the ones that are easiest to see. So, and they are often the ones that, um, that result in death or, or something physically That, that is violence against an individual. And so those are very frequently the ones that have more momentum behind them. They're very obvious, they're very aggressive, and they're not what we want. But the smaller ones that are just small examples of, of our societal system, those are harder, not just because they're small, but also because we literally don't see them as well. We're in the middle of that system. And so you don't, you don't see them. Like, for instance, introduced myself earlier. My name is Sydney Holt. That's a very easy to pronounce name. I've never had someone ask me how to pronounce my name or what it means or where it came from. But I have friends who have names that are culturally specific to their own existence. And I know many of them who have to go through their entire lives trying to explain to somebody how to pronounce their name. And I've had family members ask friends of mine before, well, do you have a nickname that I can, that I can use instead? If Honestly, if you can figure out Sydney, those are, it's the same letters. You just have to ask and find out how to pronounce someone else's name. But that's an, an example of a microaggression. You're trying to control somebody else's identity enough and, and force it into your narrative. You're trying to anglicize it in, in most ways. And it's something small that doesn't necessarily immediately negatively affect a person. I know plenty of my friends have no problem giving nicknames because they just are okay with the nickname anyway as well. But it also you have to wonder at how that would negatively affect a person, how how that how that person must then go through their life thinking, well, I cannot be my name. I'm this name because the people that I interact with and the people that I need to impress for a job or something like that can't pronounce my name. And so those tiny little ones that that are harder to see are equally as they, they feed the kind of mentality that would re that that would lead to violence against a person they're intrinsically linked those tiny little things that affect a person's mental well-being or psyche or the way that they see the world when all put together and, and compiled upon each other 
you would end up with a situation in which someone could justify breaking into someone's house because they are of a different race or someone could justify violence done against someone because of their race. But it's all the little tiny things to begin with. And so those direct, the direct examples are the most obvious, but they are often a, a byproduct of the more indirect ones affecting someone's way of thinking for years and years and years. Of course. And uh, also, it, uh, I liked very much that example of introducing yourself and having to spell your name or explain your name. I mean, explanation and spelling become part of your introducing yourself. And uh, we don't even consider that this might have uh, some violence in it. But, for example, a migrant has learned your language in order to communicate with you. Here, she has put an, an effort in achieving this. And you don't even put effort in spelling and a different name. I mean, it is outrageous. It is. It really is. And we don't really think about that sometimes. Or, um, And I say we because I am part of that majority that would not have a cause to think about it as frequently. Um, but it's absolutely a thing. And and it's meeting someone halfway. It's I sometimes liken it to the idea of English as the global language. From a linguistic perspective, English doesn't really make all that much sense. It's kind of a Frankenstein monster language of of bizarre Latin and Germanic. And every time there's a rule, there's almost more examples of that rule not being accurate than there is of that actually being a rule. And I cannot even imagine how difficult it is to learn English, especially if your native language is not Latin or Germanic. But there's an expectation that you should learn it because English, well, you just should learn it. When you ask somebody why English is the global narrative, the global language, it's very, very difficult for people to justify it once you get down into it. If you're like, well, well, why does everyone have to learn English? It's like, because, because English... I don't know. Actually, I'm not quite sure. It's not even the most popular, like the, the percentage of the population whose native language is English isn't actually the largest. And English itself is very complicated. But when you're in that system, in the middle of it, it's hard to realize that you're in it because you can't see it. It's just, it's just what your reality is. And so it's hard to remove yourself from it enough. And I would say that first step of removing yourself from it typically involves listening to the people who have already done so and, and admitting that possibly your existence isn't quite what you thought it was to begin with, or it's not the only way to exist. Yeah, actually, this is the essence of it. And uh, I think this is the reason why people who move from, the, from their own reality, they cross the borders of their own community or whatever might be regarded as their world can understand these different ways of existing. I mean, it, is, uh, it can change your whole mind. So what you have illustrated is the whole nexus of uh, relationships that um, uh, finally uh, they contribute to build all these discriminations. Either they are uh, little and subtle or they are some, you know, prominent examples where we can uh, recognize that this is racism. Um, if the, I would like to ask you, um, what are the consequences for a community of uh, being the target of racial discrimination? So racial discrimination, in my opinion, is basically set up in such a way to disenfranchise an individual's autonomy and their rights. So on a very literal level, 
if you are a member of a community that is discriminated against, you will probably have a harder time getting education. With that, with that lack of education means that you will probably have a harder time getting jobs because employers look at a look at a list of possible employees and say who has the education for it. They consider education somehow equivalent to experience in a lot of ways. He is here in the States, it's high school. So if you haven't been able to finish your high school, then you haven't been able to graduate from high school and therefore you don't have the required lesson, the required test scores to be able to get into college. If you can't get into college, there are frequently a larger number of jobs that you are considered unqualified for. At that point, you can probably guarantee that you're going to be most likely making minimum wage. And minimum wage in the states is rather egregious, especially in specific states. So if you make $7 an hour, which I think is something like, I don't know, five eighty, five pound eighty here an hour, then there's no way you can afford to live somewhere. And so you'll probably have to take two jobs on. At that point, you're working infinitely more, and it just snowballs out from there. And that's, that's just a very, very one specific literal example of it. The, the consequences on an individual are just outrageously varied. You will have – it may even affect your concept of your own identity and your own worth. I found um, – I was looking at an article the other day about um, – it was about the, the, the ways we use our, our racial identity in, in the construction of our identity. And this research, it was at the Pew Research Center, had found that a vast majority of the African-Americans who were asked at the time whether they thought how they considered their race and their identity said that they thought that their race was intrinsic to their identity development. It was something they were proud of, and it was something that was that was core in the development of the, their sense of self. Asian and Hispanic Latinx, about half of them said that, and only 15% of white people said that because they don't have to, we don't have to worry about what our race says about us. It's not something we need to claim because it's an automatic positive. So just that kind of racial discrimination on every level, individual, community, national, political, institutional, every element of it affects the way a person sees themselves and others. And because of that, it continues this, this conversation of a hierarchy of imbalance where someone is important. And if someone is important, then that means somebody else can't be. I see. And also all of this... Um... Uh, discrimination, so they actually fit into the social position this, that someone eventually have. I mean, you cannot even say if the social position is uh, the result of all this discrimination or it, because you have this social position you are discriminated against. So it is very difficult to distinguish between the, the cause and the result of all this uh, uh, situation, but no one could uh, disagree that division is definitely a result division of society. So we cannot even speak about cohesion or working towards cohesive societies or whatever when this division is um, so well-rooted in structures, behaviors. And all these examples that you have mentioned um, can be um, examples of what the so-called systemic racism, right? And uh, we have focused on uh, the group that uh, is targeted 
So I would like now to focus on the majority group, or rather the group that is uh, in um, a power relation. So in the racism equation, there's always the norms of a major group that exclude the minor other, or rather the group that is in power to exclude and discriminate. And those who silence, allowing racism and racial discrimination to occur. So... What I would like to ask in regards this, with this is what effect does racism have for the broader society? Racism absolutely affects um, everyone on a broader sense. It is a lot harder to see, like I said earlier, the direct examples of racism, the ones who are, it's like violence enacted against someone. They're very visible. So the kind of broader societal aspects are a lot harder to see from from even from economic standpoints, if you do not enfranchise everyone equally, you are far more likely to have economic downturn. If, if you disenfranchise and therefore you have minimum wages, like I mentioned, like $7 an hour, your economy will never be able to flourish quite the way you want it to. All of the money making, the, the billionaires will be able to make as much money as they could possibly want. But part of an economy is you pay people and people then use their money to f fuel economic growth. So if you're not paying people enough money, which is a very strong side effect of racial discrimination, you're not paying the people enough money, then they are not putting that money back into a system. And so that system can't actually flourish. And so you have a situation where for several decades, a minimum wage has not changed. But in the past year of COVID-19, several, I think it was something like in the 30s or 40s, 40 billion U.S. billionaires increased their wages, their, what they made over the year, in a year in which was pretty much the example for economic downturn since at least 2008, but definitely since the Great Depression. And so economically speaking, it'll, it'll affect a very, very broad sense of communities, which not that economics or the economy is directly related to a community's sense of, of healthiness, but if people have a low quality of life and a high cost of living, they are mentally, physically, emotionally affected. And then especially as we move into communities that are more diverse, larger cities, um, more diverse, the younger generations, less likely to stay in what in the 50s or 60s would have been a much more secluded um, rural setting. They're moving into more urban situations. And, and so you're coming into contact with people you may not have grown up with. For instance, I'm, I'm from East Texas. East Texas is both small, um, very, very small communities, and not very diverse in the grand scheme of things, especially compared to the bigger cities in Texas, like Austin or Dallas or Houston. And so I, as a child, had a system that, that literally did not put me into contact with any non-white person. I think I had maybe one or two people in my extended family who were Latinx. And I had obviously met African-Americans, but even six-year-old me living in East Texas with a very progressive liberal-minded family had almost no experience of what, of truly how diverse the world was. So when you get into a bigger city and you start being able to interact with people that are unlike you, you grow yourself and, and you ensure a successful continuation of a community. And so racial discrimination directly affects a community and a, a city, a culture's ability to, to exist 
for a long time. You need that cohesion and harmony in a community, for it, in a civilization, for it to be able to continue existing. And racial discrimination does nothing to promote any kind of diverse conversation building or, or any sort of culture sharing. And, and at that point, what you have is a rather, it's a downturn and, and the eventual end of a society because you cannot work together. And so racial discrimination, especially for a majority voice, we believe that it doesn't affect us. It's not important because it doesn't directly affect me. And that is not true. Not only do I find that rather morally reprehensible, but it simply is not true as well. Racial discrimination affects the mental well-being of everyone in a community. And because of that, it can affect your emotions, your physical well-being, the economy, which then affects your physical well-being as well, because it's a system that perpetuates the, the scarcity idea that somebody has to be the best and everyone else cannot be that. Racism is deadly and destructive. It not only has, has perpetuated murders of, of millions over our lifetimes, um, it, it, it justifies, it is used to justify violence. It's used to justify things that we would not usually agree uh, that, that, that they are accurate. Um, it's one of the ways that people can justify, justify police brutality and if pulling out that race racial effect, if you were just to ask, is it okay for someone to beat someone to death? Pretty much everyone will say absolutely not that that's murder. So once you add that racial element to it, it has such a terrible history of justifying truly reprehensible actions. And so it's it's not only deadly to the individual, it's deadly to a community and it's, it's this destructive force. Communities and civilizations need harmony to function, and there is nothing more dividing than the idea that someone's race sets them apart from someone else, and therefore they deserve less. Your arguments and uh, your stories that uh, have illustrated them, uh, what has shown is that um, it, it takes always a political decision. When I say this, I mean... It takes a decision in uh, shaping the everyday life politics towards directions that contrast with the mainstream, contrast with what is widespread accepted or uh, officially supported or all this situation. So if I may ask one final question, uh, no one can disagree that racism and racial discriminations are structures, systemic, they are part of our daily life in the given circumstances? Because I think that this question is so urgent. On a current level, right? We're living in a world in which we really can't actually interact with each other as much as we normally would have. And it's much, much harder to 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 connect with people. Um, I mean, even, even beyond just seeing somebody while you're out walking about, it's a lot harder to connect to someone through the video screen of, of a Zoom call. And I think at this point through all of this, we're all very, very tired of the digital conversation methods of having to use them. So I, I would, my argument is always, because it has to be on a personal level, it, it's, it's good to talk about how I could, how I think people as a community could make big changes. But I think especially right now when we're just existing with ourselves most frequently, it's worth it to focus in on what you as an individual can do 
from a white perspective, the the point is to be an ally and the point is to be to be willing to learn and evolve and use your voice to help others rather than helping yourself. And so especially right now, obviously we can't really meet and we can't do a lot of very large um, – like the Black Lives Matter walks and the the political movements, the the literal gathering of forces to to the rallies and things, they can't happen as frequently right now. It's it's not as safe. Um, but on an individual level, it's all about trying to make sure that what you are doing is most reflective of those beliefs of equality, individual freedoms, and and rights of the, the basic rights of human beings. And making sure that as much as you are promoting that narrative and and you are existing in it, understanding that there is always room to grow and learn. And so especially if you are part of the majority voice, your your responsibility is is to listen when you are told something. It's, It's to listen to the narratives and the histories and stories of people who have been discriminated against in order to make sure that what the narrative that you are continuing is actually beneficial to the people as as a as a white person who studied holocaust and genocide studies in my degree when i was researching it i had a lot of people who i would mention that that's what i was studying and frequently i'd get back the question oh i didn't realize you were jewish which i'm i'm not jewish and i've never pretended to be so but it it struck me that it was so hard for people to understand researching something that did not directly affect you. And when I say people, I do mean the white people that I spoke to who asked me this question. I did not receive this question very frequently from members of minority communities. And it was that idea that if it doesn't directly affect you, I don't know why it matters to you. If it doesn't directly affect me, it doesn't matter to me. And it's it's focusing on erasing the idea that something A has to directly affect you and B that the direct affecting a, must be visible because everything affects you. If you're a member of a community and a culture and a civilization, everything affects you. And so if you can pull it out, pull out the idea that it has to visibly affect you or you have to have a reason that that justifies your interest in something. My interest in Holocaust and genocide studies was not because I – am ethnically Jewish or even any other discriminated against community from from the Holocaust or other genocides. I am white Southern American, and that's about as diverse as I get. But it 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 is a genocides in the Holocaust in specific were were events that were indicative of a larger larger problem and since it affects everybody everybody has a responsibility and a responsibility to try and change it and a right you can make changes about yourself and even though that's obviously not the only way to do this this as you said it's a big political statement you have to change the way the world accepts reality and and to do so that's a very big grand conversation but one way to do that is the individual levels. So it's about having conversations. It's about reading. It's about trying to better your own perspective and and expand your viewpoint to a point where you can be you can actually be taking part in conversations that will go ahead and propel change. And I think especially right now when we're all pretty much stuck at home, 
um, as uncomfortable as it is to question your own existence. And I wouldn't suggest doing it daily. I think there's far too much lockdown left for us to question our existence on the daily. But that sort of introspective look into yourself and see what are the ways in which you can work to make yourself a better chess piece in this game. Because we all know that we want the end result to be equality and a dismantling of, of the racial system. You mentioned apartheid to begin with. And apartheid is a good example because it went on for decades, for most of the 20th century. And it was so intrinsic in the everyday existence of South Africa that when it was done, when it was officially dismantled in the 90s, it didn't just go away overnight. They, you can't wake up one day and decide, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to racially stereotype people. And so it takes this everyday uphill kind of every day I need to ask myself what I need to question my own beliefs. And if someone tells me that what I am doing is an example of a microaggression, I need to really look at that and say, okay, how am I even unknowingly perpetuating this thing? And it's an everyday checking in with yourself to make sure. And right now, probably the best time to be working on yourself anyway. So individual responsibility, and if I may add, spread the word. Yes, I mean, yes. Every change in your mind and every understanding should not be limited to your own mind. Exactly, exactly. As much as I think we're probably tired of the digital conversations, it is undeniable that right now it is very easy to reach out to people and, and, and to talk with them. And you can even have some really good Zoom fatigue aside. I think we can all have some really, really good conversations right now. People are trying to reach out to others. Um, since we can't see people as much anymore, and frankly, I don't know how many of us actually want to spend that much time with ourselves anyway, right now is a really good time to focus inwardly and then to grow from external conversations and, and community-driven relationships. Sydney, thank you for all this. I think that our discussion now has reached to an end. Thank you for listening. Feel free to get in touch with us at Twitter to share your thoughts over the episode or to express your interest for showcasing your research or participating in a thematic discussion. And of course, stay tuned. Racism being a massive topic and an urgent social issue, we are preparing two more episodes to be released as part of this session, showcasing research currently undertaken at KUB, as well as current experiences and awareness activities in resonance with Black Lives Matter. Stay tuned.